Charlie, there's one novel by Proust that everyone knows, which is... À la recherche de temps perdu. Exactly. Which brings us to last night's elections. Yeah. Welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen, by the way. Uh, you know what podcast this is? I'm always... I feel a little funny having to introduce the podcast because people don't listen to a podcast by accident. It doesn't just come on the radio. But we always introduce it anyway. So, welcome to Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Instead of a uh, surprise ending, we had a surprise beginning. So, Yeah. Um, so, Georgia last night. Hmm. Pretty good. Pretty good. And I, I say that because the figures within American political life who have lied about Georgia's elections for the last three years have all lost. Done pretty poorly. <laughs> yeah. Stacey Abrams lost in 2018 by 50,000 votes. And Donald Trump's candidates for various races in in Georgia, I, I exempt Herschel Walker because it was not fought over the 2020 election. Uh, mm. but, but David Perdue uh lost badly to Brian Kemp Trump wanted Kemp gone and Brad Raffensperger secretary of state the number one pin on the Target enemies on his list one by double digits was avoided it? a runoff yeah his race wasn't even close was it no yeah. and uh this is good uh and and then of course the the liars about Florida's uh, Florida uh, Georgia's election law from from last year also lost in that yes. uh, they're now having to admit uh, turnout's very very high. So this is a good three for three. Yeah, revisit for me if you don't mind. I know I recall the um, there were some changes made to Georgia's election regulations that these were decried as. Um, what was Joe Biden's phrase? Not not Jim Crow, but Jim Eagle. Yes. <laughs> Whatever the hell that means. Uh, what did they actually change? I forget. It was like signature matching had to be driver's license number instead or something like that, right? Yeah, and they banned, you know, well, they got cast as banning the provision of water in line, but it's it's more anti-bribing law. Right. And they expanded the number of early voting days, I believe. I think they, they reduced the number of places. Mm-hmm. I'm actually a bit fuzzy on it now because it's a year since I looked into it. But I remember looking into it and thinking, my goodness me, I've never seen so much hype. Yeah. So, yeah, the, 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 you know, the food and drink provision thing I kind of get because, you know, coffee is really expensive now. So I don't I don't normally vote, but I you know I might go stand in line for two hours to avoid my five dollars and seventy five cents at Starbucks. Well, if they were writing it now, it Kevin, they would make it illegal to provide someone with gasoline in exchange for yes. Yeah. <laughs> gallon of gas. I might um I might actually uh, I might sell my vote for a full tank of gas. Who knows? But um I have a Jeep. You know these things are not fuel efficient. But um so and turnout did what? I mean I know it's higher, but how much higher? I don't know how much higher. I know it was so high that Stacey Abrams had to issue this absurd statement in which she said, when we talk about voter suppression, we're not saying that it prevents people from voting. 
<laughs> what kind of voter suppression is it then? She then mm. said, we're talking about the sort that makes it harder to cast a ballot. <laughs> what? Makes it harder, but with no right. effect. Right. Gotcha. I think one of the other problems with the criticisms of Georgia is that most of the uh, the meat on the bone was actually a criticism of counties. Yeah. And many of the counties that were criticized were not uh, run by Republicans, were not under Brian Kemp or Brad Raffensperger's control. And so you know, they would throw this in at the beginning of the criticism. They say, did you know that in this county or that county, they had to wait over five hours? Well, that's bad, but that's a county issue given right. the way Georgia's elections are set up. I don't think Georgia's elections are perfect, by the way. I think Florida's elections are perfect. I've said this for a long time. <laughs> Quite seriously, if I had a magic wand, I would wave it and send Jeb Bush at a reasonable salary around the country to do for 49 states what he and the legislature did for Florida after the disaster of 2000. Yeah, because Florida works well. You know, F- Florida has a mail-in ballot system that is trustworthy and trusted. It has rules that allow it to pre-count all of those ballots so that we don't wait for hours on election night and you don't end up with uh, the blue shift, which is not a, a problem per se, but which does uh, lead to a lack of confidence in the, in the voting system. Um, and in all of those issues with hanging chads and signature that doesn't happen here um why because it did because it happened really badly and they went back to square one and so of course twice now in 2018 and 2020 you had record turnout in florida and the votes were counted within an hour and everyone said oh i guess this person won then um that's good jeb bush as governor was was pretty good at governing as it turns out he just was no good at owning the liberals on uh twitter and and he sucked at TikTok, you know. So I mean, there's no way a guy like that could ever be uh, be president. Terrific so the Republicans government. are really, really good at gerrymandering, but they still kind of suck at voter suppression. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, something to keep in mind. I guess they've got you know, there's always room for improvement. So um, other elections around the country, I didn't really follow these too closely. That's why I'm just interviewing you right now instead of contributing to the conversation like a grown-up, well-informed adult. Because I find these recent elections just too boring and dispiriting to follow. So what else happened? Well, um, actually, in your neck of the woods, I believe that there was a race between a, a candidate that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez really liked and Henry Quaylar, is that how you say his name? Mm-hmm. In Texas 28. And I believe that Henry Quaylar won. Quaylar, actually. Quaylar. I like yeah, him because I just think that it is healthy for parties to have heterodox people and have more geographical diversity, you know, real yeah, diversity. Kind of an institution, yeah. But real diversity, not, not the way we use diversity now, which is everyone right. sits in a room and looks different, has different sexual preferences, but agrees on everything. But actual diversity. I mean, the guy's a, a you know, an enforce the border, pro-life Democrat who also disagrees with Republicans on almost every economic policy. Yeah, fine. Why not? Why, why wouldn't that person exist in Texas? Yeah, you know, um, the Texas Democratic Party, of course, within living memory, you know, within my memory, was was a very, very different party from what it is now. 
Um, and of course there was more regional variation throughout the country, I think, but I can remember, you know, when, uh, there was a young up and coming, very promising democratic politician named Rick Perry, who was, uh, managing the Gore campaign in Texas in 88, or was the honorary chairman of it or whatever. He didn't really do anything. I don't think, but, um, yeah, the, uh, democratic party here was, um, well, in many ways, I guess, sort of a, a mini version of what the whole country looks like now, which was that it had sort of conventional progressive uh, left-leaning types that we now think of as ordinary Democrats in the uh, big cities and in um, and in some uh, very poor areas. And then it was sort of a you know moderate, uh, business-friendly, um, in some ways socially conservative, but. Um, but not exclusively so, you know, party in the rest of the state. And of course, for a long time, you know, being a Republican in Texas was just a political death sentence. You know, you could hardly go um, anywhere. I think we had um, one Republican governor between Reconstruction and George W. Bush, something like that. And it was, it was into the 90s, or I guess maybe in the turn of the century, before Republicans actually took full control of the, the legislature here. So, you know, the conservative Republican Party in Texas is um, not some ancient distant memory, although I think it would be very difficult for um, someone who isn't a very well-established figure like Henry Cuellar or someone along those lines to uh, build a, a political career as a Democrat in Texas without having sort of at least roughly, you know, Nancy Pelosi's politics, if not quite uh, Ocasio-Cortez's. Big country. Yeah, you know, Texas politics is kind of interesting. I don't want to spend too much time on it, but um, Texas politics, I, I wish politicians from around the country, particularly Democrats, could spend some time down here because I think they would talk more intelligently about some pretty important issues. Um, for instance, the fact that the category Hispanic does not mean anything. Yeah. Um, you know, there are, uh, Mexican-American families in West Texas, where I'm from, who've been there for seven generations and are, you know, quite conservative um, in a lot of ways. I'm traditionally still connected to the Democratic Party, although not so much anymore. Um, whereas recent immigrants on the border are, you know, culturally and politically and economically very different from, from these old families. And um, one of the sort of unlovely things about um Hispanic culture in Texas is that Mexican Americans tend to be uh, don't see themselves as part of a single entity with immigrants from El Salvador and Guatemala and things like that. In fact, can be really quite um, nasty on that subject in, in private, at least. Um, so the idea that there's this you know single group of people that includes Mexican Americans, Cuban Americans recent immigrants from Guatemala and El Salvador and Costa Rica and places like that and Colombia is just um, silly. You know, we need to, I think, talk about this issue in a more important way because these are people who make up an increasingly large share of our population and an important and growing part of our electorate and our um, body politic. You know, I often, I often say that, you know, my home county, Lubbock, I think is a place that maybe Republicans should, um, study some because I want to say it's 40% Mexican American, 41% Mexican American or something like that and 79% Republican and probably more than 80% Republican, probably close to 90% Republican in uh 
in uh, presidential elections. Um, well, the city itself, probably not so much, but the surrounding area, certainly. And I, I've talked to some folks up there and I, I said, what do you guys do about, you know, Hispanic outreach, as, as they call it everywhere else? And their answer essentially was, we don't do anything uh, because, you know, it, this is you're talking about half of our population here. We don't have some special, you know, approach for a group of people that constitutes half the population. You know, we have outreach to small business owners, which brings in um, a lot of Hispanic small business owners. We have outreach to farmers and brings in a lot of Mexican-American farmers and uh, to people who care about school choice and, and other sorts of things. Um, you know, the way Republicans and Democrats really currently do it, which is, you know, sending some often Anglo politician into a community to speak very, very bad Spanish yeah. to people who cannot understand a word he's saying um, because they speak an entirely different kind of Spanish. If they speak Spanish at all, you know, um, a lot of uh, Mexican-Americans in Texas don't speak Spanish. Um, it's been a long time since some of these families have been Spanish-speaking families. Uh, we just have this kind of, um, you know, absurd, really crude notion of, uh, of what it means. Yeah, so there was, a, there was this left-wing critique of my book. I can't remember where it appeared. But the two criticisms were, one, I didn't talk about the environment at all. True. Mm. Guilty as charged. And the other was that at the end, I said, what should Republicans do about minority voters? And then I said nothing. Because thinking about people like that's gross. And instead, they should just say, here's what we believe to everyone. And hope they agree with them. Yeah. And of course... You know, for a little bit, Republicans didn't do that. They tried to work out what to do to appeal to Hispanics. But actually, what they've ended up doing is pretty much what I recommended, which is just yeah. say, hey, do you like cheap gas? <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you, too, find inflation difficult? Yeah, I think they have a lot of work to do still on you know, sort of context and venue. You know, maybe uh, you know, having the, the sort of same message for every community is, is fine and desirable. But they probably still need to spend more time. Oh, they do. In, yeah, they do. But what I mean is, I, I, for their votes. I really, I really dislike the uh, race essentialist view that you need to go in and sort of say, "Hello, Hispanic people." <laughs> Hola. Uh, now you need to talk to them. But you know, the, the the key example of this is Ed Gillespie in Virginia. Now he he lost, but he almost won that Senate seat in 2014. Shocked everyone. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that was he did really, really well among Indian Americans. Mm -hmm. um, not American Indians, but Indian Americans. And one of the reasons that he did really well among Indian Americans was he um, oh, actually talked to them. Yeah, you know, He didn't just say, oh, well. he went and talked to them. But again, he didn't say, hello, people who look different than me. Let's talk. You know, he just went and said, hey, I'm Namaste, first. Indian American. Right. He just went and said, hey, um, <laughs> my name is Ed Gillespie, and I'm interested in, you know, low taxes and a good business environment and good schools, and, and please vote for me. And, of course, some of them said, nope. And enough of them said yes that he almost won the race. And I, I, I just hate the... Um, the slicing and dicing. You know, if you read the the 2012 uh, post-mortem after Romney lost to Obama, there's a lot in it that gets criticized on the merits for just being wrong or for, for fighting the last war or what you will. But the thing I hate about it is this sort of section, like, if we want Hispanics to vote for us, we must... Nah, nah. That's... 
I just don't think that's how human beings think. I, I really yeah. don't. And, and you know, in, insofar as this idea motivates people in our politics, I think it's, it's rotten. Yeah, Republicans campaigning for Indian Americans. Um, I, I like the idea of going in and saying, I'm a Republican. You are, depending on who's doing the measuring, either the wealthiest or the second wealthiest demographic group in the country. Surely we can do something. <laughs> <laughs> well, they Surely used we to. Can make work here. Yeah. I mean, George H.W. Bush won, I think, 70, 75% of Asian American voters. Yeah, that's an interesting story. So, um, one thing that I've, I've, I've read about on that front is that. Um, the increasing identification of the Republican Party with sort of Southern evangelical culture and sensibility has costed Asian American votes. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think there's a lot to that. And I think that the the opportunity that Republicans have with Asian American voters is as a pushback to crass race essentialism. Yeah. Uh, in for particularly in affirmative action. I mean, again, I don't think Republicans should say vote for us because you're Asian American. I think Republicans should say, because it's the right thing to do, we don't believe in affirmative action. We believe in meritocracy. You guys are getting screwed by an anti-meritocratic bean-counting approach to race, and we're not going to do that. You know, I think that's, there's a real opportunity there. What you know, I don't what I like in- is this idea that, you know, because the way this often gets put, again, I just think it's a bit crass, which is... Well, you know, Asians have a strong family culture, and they're also very right. business-minded. <laughs> and I, ah, it, it, it's just, I don't like those stereotypes. I, th- I think that's a no, horrible way uh, to think about politics. And also, Asia's an awfully big place. That's All another point. All sorts of different people in Asia. You know, Kazakhstan, not really very much like Sri Lanka. No, no. Uh, I was about to say something really insightful, and it certainly jumped out of my mind, so... What were we talking about? Asian Americans, outreach. Race essentialism and how to win elections by just talking to people about things humans care about. Yeah, I was thinking of the affirmative action stuff. I had a point to make there. It seems to have just gone away, but that's all right. We'll come back to it. I'm sure it'll occur to me at some point. I mean, funnily enough, on the, on the Asian American front, Trump did fairly well. And... You know, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina. I think yeah, I'm it, right in saying that Trump won 50% of Asian voters in Georgia. You know, give him credit in his crude and uh, Trumpy way. He asked African-Americans for their votes yeah. and Asian-Americans for their votes and Latinos for their votes. And, um, you know, at least made some kind of case for himself. I kind of loved the way that he asked African Americans to vote for him. I have to say, <laughs> how uh, could what, things be any worse? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What have you got to lose? What have you got to lose? Goodness. Yeah. Funny, funny stuff. Um, do you think he's going to run again in twenty twenty four? Oh, Kevin, just don't. <laughs> yes, I do. Here's here's why I'm so down about this. Is I think he's going to run again. I've become convinced of this. So he'll and, win the nomination if he runs again. Well, that's what everyone says. But I have also been told, again, who knows, that if he runs, DeSantis won't. And I think that's a huge mistake. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't wake up every morning and kiss the Ron DeSantis poster on my wall. And I increasingly have problems with Ron DeSantis. But I would take him any day of the week over Trump. And I think mm-hmm. that he would have a shot to be the nominee. 
And I think that would be a really good thing if he were. Uh, partly because he would get rid of Trump, but partly because I think he's relative to the other options. He's going to be a good candidate. And I agree with him on 70% of stuff. And if he doesn't run now, first off, it will mean Trump will be the nominee without really a challenge. And second, I don't think DeSantis will ever be the nominee. I, I think this is his moment. Yeah. I don't think you can wait. I mean, you know, it's like Chris Christie in 2012 is the most obvious example. After that, he he his moment had gone. The zeitgeist would be different in 2028. It would be different for a Republican to be running after uh, Trump if Trump wins and then wins the presidency, which is possible. Uh, yeah. But also, you know, by that point, DeSantis would have been term limited out of the Florida's governor uh, governor's mansion for for two years, and and it's just. Well, we mentioned Jeb earlier. You know, a good example of that. That you know, when he was running in uh, sixteen, he'd been a really good governor, but people had kind of forgotten about it by that point. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I do. I do think Trump will run and. Uh... I mean, I could see him winning the nomination fairly easily. I could also see him winning the presidency less easily, but it could happen. Yeah. Goodness gracious. Uh, well, here's a depressing thought. Um, well, not for everyone, I suppose. For me, though. Um, do you want to talk about gun stuff a little bit in this um, Saul Cornell fellow I've been writing about? Yeah, so why don't you tell everyone about Saul Cornell? Yeah, so I guess he's a professor of history at uh, Fordham, is that right? Mm -hmm. And uh, one of his areas, I guess, is uh, gun law and uh, Second Amendment and stuff like that. And uh, I've actually, I corresponded with him before, um, as it turns out. I was reminded of this because I got an email from him today, and it pulled up the old correspondence. Um, so he, he wrote this piece in Slate that contained a claim that I thought was really quite sort of bizarre and, and interesting, which was that the um, you know modern sporting rifle, an AR-15 type rifle, is 200 times as lethal as the muskets that were used to fight the Revolutionary War. And why I thought that was interesting was because of the, you know, whenever I see a nice round number like 200 or 50 or 10, uh, 10 times, I always assume that it's wrong because nothing ever works out that neatly. So I wondered about the source of that claim. So I followed the link he had provided, and it goes to this study, um, which was published in 1964. And um, it was a historian who was trying to quantify the lethality of various kinds of weapons, not just small arms, but also, um, you know, mortars and rockets and things like that, and tanks, I guess. Um, in a military context, it was a research paper that was done, I guess, for the, uh, I want to say for the Department of Defense, but I might be wrong about that. And it says, of course, not one word about um, AR-15 type rifles. Um, now, one reason it doesn't say anything about them specifically is that, not to get too much gun nerdery here, but the 5.56 millimeter cartridge wasn't actually even developed until the 1970s, the decade after this paper was published, although it's very similar to the 223, which was in um, use before then. But it just didn't come up because this was, you know, a guy who was writing about, you know, some sort of historical issues, basically from the Revolutionary War through about Korea, I guess. 
And um, so not only does it not say that the AR is 200 times as powerful, it doesn't say anything about the AR at all. It does, however, now even if you set aside for a moment the question of how do you quantify this stuff and does it actually mean anything, it estimated that a World War II-era machine gun was about 100 times as lethal as one of these 18th century muskets. So by the transitive power of mathematics, I think is what we call it, if something is 100 times as lethal as X and something else is 200 times as lethal as X, then the second one is twice as lethal as the first. So by implication, an AR-15 is twice as lethal as the crew-served, belt-fed machine guns they were shooting down airplanes and armored vehicles with in World War II, which is, of course, preposterous. And uh, so I, I wrote as much. And he responded to me but via email, and we've corresponded back and forth a little bit. And I've been trying to figure out, you know, where exactly he got this claim. And what I have concluded is he just flat out made it up. Um, now, what he's currently saying in our last bit of correspondence is that um, what he did was take the lethality estimate of these World War II machine guns and use that as a stand-in for his AR-15. Now, that in and of itself is crazy. That is insane. Well, it's insane, but it's also not true. Because, of course, if you run the estimate um, according to the numbers in this lethality index, that doesn't come up to 200. It comes up to 115. So I don't think the guy is, is probably stupid. And I assume that a professor of history, even at Fordham, can do math well enough that he's not going to be off by half on a very simple uh, division problem. So I think he just made it up through the link in there without paying too much attention to what it said and just relied on the bias and intellectual laziness of his editors at Slate and the stupidity and bias and intellectual laziness of his readers at Slate that this would just fly. And it did. And it would have if um, I hadn't got interested in it and said something about it. So at last check, Slate hadn't even bothered correcting it or uh, anything like that. So, you know, mistakes happen in journalism all the time. I've published a lot of corrections in my life. No one who writes as much as I do doesn't publish a lot of corrections. Um, I don't blame people for mistakes uh, in journalism, but I don't think this is a mistake. I think this is a fabrication. I think he just made up an impressive sounding quantitative claim to buttress a, an otherwise weak argument and then attribute it to a source that the claim doesn't appear in and nothing like the claim appears in. You know, it's not like getting 33 million mixed up with 33 billion, which we've all done things like that, or putting a decimal point in the wrong place or um, figuring a percentage the wrong way or something like that. All of us English majors certainly have done all of those things uh, from time to time. You know, he didn't get the measurement wrong. He just made up the fact that the measurement was there in the first place. And that seems to me a very, very serious um, violation of intellectual standards and academic standards and journalistic ethics. So as you know, I am driven. Oh, and to he says you're, he says you're a chicken, by the way, too. Yes. No, of course. As you know, I'm driven to distraction by people who lie in this area. Yeah. And not because I came from some 
household in which respect for the Second Amendment was deep-seated. Quite the opposite. I grew up believing strongly, as did every single person around me, that guns were not for civilian use and that the United States was loony tunes for for allowing the citizenry to, to own them. And I changed my, my mind on that. But one of the reasons I changed my mind on that w- was that the counter-arguments, historically speaking, are just so weak. And yeah. Saul Cornell is one of the people, one of the few people, who peddles extremely weak arguments, indefensibly weak arguments. That's essentially why he exists, is to pretend that the overwhelming historical evidence is not there. And as such, I I can't say I'm surprised to learn that he's doing it about actual weapons Mm -hmm. in the same way as as he does it about about history and language. Um, Also, I, I don't want to be callous here, but just while I'm thinking about it, let me throw this out. Even assuming that this, um, lethality uh study was meaningful in some way um we should emphasize that this was an estimate of the use of weapons in battle under battlefield conditions which doesn't really tell us very much about how they might be used in crime so we don't have a lot of people robbing liquor stores or doing drive-by shootings with surface-to-air missiles. Um, And even if they had them, it wouldn't be practical. So even if we assume that, you know, an AR-15 is more potentially lethal than a revolver, if you are, as that grotesque in Uvalde, Texas, was barricaded in a room full of nine-year-olds, I don't think it probably matters all that much what you were armed with. Uh, if you were barricaded in a room full of nine-year-olds, you could probably be armed with a kitchen knife and achieve essentially the same result. You know, this is not a matter of what kind of firepower you have no. access to, although it is certainly in the military setting, I would imagine, anyway. Yeah, I I just did uh, Megan Kelly's TV show and we talked about this. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the... The problems we have here that pre-exists policy, gun policy, security policy, uh, the involuntary commitment policy, red flag policy, is that it is just beyond the ken of almost everyone that that man could have done this. Yeah. And it's very difficult to start even interrogating it. And I'm not a legislator, and I'm also not especially good at math, but if I were a legislator who's good at math, I think I would be able to participate in conversation with a fairly wide group of people about how tax incentives would affect different constituent groups. Yeah, I think I'd be able to think from the perspective of a small business owner and of a lawyer and of a single mother. I wouldn't be perfect at it, but I could try. I could grasp as a human being. I could empathize 
and understand what we might need to change to alter behavior or gain insight or alter outcomes. Uh, here, <laughs> I just don't know what to say. I mean, it, it almost drives me to tears as, as a human and, and as a father of two. Yeah. I mean, how do you... Like, you, how do you even start? He, he, I mean, I'll be honest with you. And this is a, a you know, very serious thing to say. But I'll be honest with you. If, if, if I were in a classroom of, of children with a gun and someone said to me, you have to shoot them, I would shoot myself before I would do it. Yeah. I just can't. <laughs> and so, you know, you get to this point where people are talking about as you say, well, what about this Glock, or what about the forty-five ACP round, or what, he had a he had a Daniel Defense AR. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't do it to a lizard. I just it, it it is it is at that point so so profoundly evil and so profoundly alien. And just to be clear, I'm not making a case here against thinking about the policy implications. I'm not trying to shirk talking about gun control. You know, we do it a lot. I'm open to all of those conversations. But I just, I don't know how you approach this as a society. Because, the, you know, the problem we have is that there, there just need to be a handful of people who are like that every year for us to spend days despairing like we are today. And of course, it is true that those people in America, on average, have access to more firepower than they would in Britain. And that's why we have more of these incidents. I, yeah. I accept all of that. But as you say, I mean, once you reach the point that he reached in that classroom, it, it's not. You can't stop it. I think that's what makes me so frightened by it. <laughs> you yeah. can't stop it, right? There's you, you could you could have banned every firearm that was invented after 1840 and you can't stop it. No. And and I don't know if we even know how to think about that. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this because um I wrote a response to, um, well, partly a response to the Nick Kristoff piece in the, in the New York Times, which I'll get to in a second. But if you look at the worst acts of terrorism in American history, modern American history anyway, by, by body count, um, you know, the worst one was committed by guys armed with box cutters who flew airplanes into buildings. Uh, the third worst one was a guy who made a bomb out of fertilizer and blew up a federal building in Oklahoma City. Uh, the one in the middle, the second worst one, was the um, massacre of African-Americans in Tulsa, which was partly carried out by people with firearms, uh, partly carried out by arson, uh, partly carried out, apparently, in some cases, by aerial bombing uh, from uh, civilian airplanes and improvised uh, incendiary devices. Um, getting rid of semi-automatic rifles you have to go pretty down far on the list before you get um, something where that would even be uh, relevant. I was thinking of the Kristoff thing because he has this long, uh, splendidly illustrated piece in the New York Times today about how to reduce um, 
deaths and firearms. And uh, to his credit, he's you know he's pretty honest about a lot of things, including the fact that um, you know a large number of the deaths we're talking about are suicides rather than you know these sort of um, terrorist and uh, mass shooting incidents and things like that. And he considers, you know, various kinds of guns and these sort of technological ideas about so-called smart guns that only shoot if they're held by a certain person and, you know, some pretty, pretty fanciful stuff. But one thing he never mentions is who does the shooting in most American homicides, which he could read his own newspaper and learn that in New York City, nearly 90 percent of the people who commit murders are people with prior criminal records, um, often for violent crimes, sometimes for felonies, very often for weapons offenses, which we don't really prosecute all that hard. And my theory about this, which I will get to in the piece that should come out later today, is that we don't start these debates by choosing our policy. We start these debates by choosing our villain. And we want to tell a story, the progressives want to tell a story, in which the villain is the National Rifle Association and sort of American gun culture and people like you who um, like AR rifles and that sort of stuff. Because if we did the thing that would actually be probably effective from a policy point of view, which is a more robust enforcement of gun laws, including things like simple illegal possession and uh, straw buyer, uh, purchases, which is a big, big uh, problem that we hardly ever prosecute, that would mean almost certainly um, imprisoning and prosecuting a body of habitual offenders who are going to be largely disproportionately young African-American men. And any story that produces that as your narrative is unacceptable politically, culturally, emotionally, for a sort of Nick Kristoff style progressive, they want a story in which the bad guy or the person they can blame is the is the National Rifle Association. Yeah, and and actually, and I don't even like the NRA very much. I think they're kind of jackasses, to be honest. Which but they're, they're also, you know, as, as, I'm going to be at their annual meeting this week, so I should probably <laughs> be look, nice. Look, this, but, uh, this guy. I mean, full disclosure, I write for the NRA's magazine, but but the NRA is a oh, I forgot. Yeah, but but the NRA is a is a um, it's it's not the signal. The NRA is an expression of the signal from the American public. And if the NRA yeah. disappeared and we got the BRA or the CRA or the DRA, <laughs> I mean, it, it wouldn't matter. They, they would say the same stuff on behalf of the I same the constituency. I think the CRA is, is Char- Charlie's Rifle Association. <laughs> you know, it, conservatives target Planned Parenthood because they don't want to send taxpayers' money to abortion mills. They're not under the impression that if Planned Parenthood went away, no one would be pro-choice. Right. Planned Parenthood reflects a large, possibly even majority position in the United States in favor of some abortion rights. It's not going to disappear yep. if you crush it. The National Rifle Association doesn't have a veto within our constitutional order. It is reflective of an American commitment to the right to keep and bear arms. 80% of Americans oppose a handgun ban. The NRA says that on the radio, and candidates who oppose handgun bans win elections. You know, this is whatever you think of the NRA's internal structure, whatever you think of Wayne Lapierre, whatever, it doesn't matter that this is such a weird little bogeyman that that yes. um, the left has. But, you know, on your point about uh, Nick Kristoff, I think this is really one of the most interesting developments of recent years. And I don't think it gets talked about enough. 
broadly speaking, conservatives oppose gun control. Not all of them, but, but broadly speaking, conservatives have come to a position where they oppose further gun control measures, or at least strong gun control measures. Broadly speaking, um, progressives and old-school liberals uh, favor more gun control. Some of them draconian gun control, some of them more moderate gun control. But they also favor a lot of policies that make the gun control that they want really difficult to achieve. And that's new in that if you listen to progressives make speeches about their policy platforms, they end up saying things that are incompatible with one another. They end up saying, we need an assault weapons ban and essentially to overturn Heller and you know, restrictions on magazine size and restrictions on uh, uh, the caliber um, of round and all sorts of things. And they also say that we have an incarceration problem, that right. we need to defund the police, that our criminal justice system is intrinsically and ineluctably racist. And, you know, you end up as a result with some really strange uh, outcomes, such as in the Bruin case, which is the concealed carry case out of New York, the Supreme Court's about to decide, a whole bunch of amicus briefs from anti-gun progressive defense lawyers saying, well, we're not into the Second Amendment, but the New York uh, law in question is devastating to our clients and to racial justice, and therefore we want it gone. Yeah. And I, I find that... Conversation uh, at, go ahead, please. No, I was just going to say, and I find that fascinating because... You know, on the one hand, you have a conservative movement that is is a big obstacle to gun control. Um, but on the other, you have a progressive movement that is an obstacle to the execution of any gun control measure that they might be likely to get through. Right. <laughs> and And I don't think that gets talked about enough. So I was at a conference a couple of weeks ago on the um, you know, state of black America and various um, policy ideas that might um, address some of the problems um, that African-Americans continue to have. And the subject of gun control came up and is one very thoughtful, I think, very well-intentioned and, and uh, well-meaning uh, activist said, you know, we we worry about gun control because we don't want it to become the new war on drugs, essentially, and to be the mechanism by which we end up. Um, incarcerating large numbers of uh, young black men, and I don't think that's—I don't think that's an absurd worry. I think that's—that's um, that's a pretty well-grounded worry. I think that um, even if you assume some level of bias in who gets arrested, who gets prosecuted, and all that sort of thing, um, the data suggests very strongly that if we enforce these laws uh, more robustly, that that burden is going to fall disproportionately on younger black men. Um, but, you know, that puts us in a, in a situation of what you were saying. We have to, um, decide, do we actually want to try to do the things that we can do from a policy point of view that are likely to reduce crime? And, um, also I think it's, um, when we talk about the fact that there is, um, 
disproportionate criminality among young black men. We tend to think that that tells us something about young black men categorically, at least we talk that way. I mean, if you press someone, everyone sort of understands that isn't the case. We're talking about a relatively small subset of people within that population who are um, habitual criminals. You know, if you look at the people who get arrested and convicted on violent felony charges, you know, they tend to be people who already have pretty extensive records um, before they end up getting sent to prison. So we're not talking about, you know, black men under 40 at large. We're talking about, you know, a relatively small group of people within that population who um, are disproportionately involved in crime. And it's very difficult, I think, for us to talk about these things in an honest and uh, an open way because subject of race makes everyone very uncomfortable. It's very easy to demagogue that subject. Um, you know, you get denounced as a racist. I'm sure I will be for this podcast. And um, we are sort of committed to ignoring um, the facts that are in front of us. And I think that's really the emotional impetus behind this whole kind of, you know, it's the NRA, it's the big gun lobby, it's these, uh, you know, men in camouflage pats, pants hanging out at sporting goods stores that are really the, uh, the issue here. I think that's just nonsensical. It's nonsensical and it's offensive. And I, I've yeah. spoken to a few people down here. I was actually at a dinner last night with some friends here. And um, this came up. And, you know, not everyone is a conservative. And certainly not everyone there was a Second Amendment advocate. Yeah. Um, you know, especially women tend to be less so, not all. But, and, so you have friends who are normal people. Yeah. <laughs> But but there was a general general feeling among all of those people that to suggest that this was you know a, a debate between people who care and people who don't is infuriating. And of course that's what immediately happens. And Biden said it last night after this dinner late, but he said, We all know how to fix this. And then he said some people just don't want to. And, and of course, if that were true, then there would be some truly terrible people um, among us. And, you know, one of the things that I said last night, I mean, we wouldn't talk about this all evening, but it came up, was, you know, if I believed for a single second that getting rid of my guns would make my two children safer, I would do it. I wouldn't even think about it. I would walk out the front of my house. You could film it if you want. And I would hand them over. If I thought that was going to make a difference to the well-being of my children. But you know what? I really don't. I think it would make no difference at all. And in fact, I think it would make me slightly less safe. Because although, you know, I'm hardly that important. There are crazies out there who send us emails. And, you know, if someone sure. did come here, yeah, I would probably be better off if I were able to to defend myself. And, you know, that's the part of this that is really offensive, is this this line that, well, you'd much rather cling to your gun than you would. No. It's just that I don't think that I'm the problem. I don't think that me giving up the guns I have will make the slightest bit of difference to this. And what I think would happen, even if we impose the most draconian gun control, even if we went full prohibition on this and we passed federal laws and we, we asked men with guns, of course, to 
enforce them nationally. You want to go repeal into, the Second Amendment. Yeah, but more than that, we say you go into Louisiana and you take all those guns at, by force. Even yeah. if we did that, I don't think we would stop these problems. And I think you would end up with the same problems that we have now, the ones that I don't know how to fix and find frightening, the same problems that we have now, except you'd also have 150 million angry people who would say, hang on a minute, you really upended the civic rules in this country. Because it wouldn't just be the Second Amendment you'd have to repeal. You'd have to repeal or violate all sorts of other amendments. You'd have to uh, change due process rules. You'd have to change takings rules. Uh, You'd have to violate the Fourth Amendment if you were to find all of those guns. Uh, You upended the civic fabric of this country, and we didn't fix the problem. And I think we would be worse off in that situation than we are now. Uh, you know, baddest the problem that we have to face is. And, you know, when Biden goes on TV and talks like that, I don't think he realizes how many people he is annoying. It really isn't just me. Uh, and I was interested by that last night, that um, that normal people, <laughs> not me and you, can sense that too. Mm. All right. Well, three cheers for the normal people. <laughs> Talk to you next week. All right. Bye.